Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Some of you have not been here very long and you don't know that almost three years ago exactly we took a break from the book of 1 Corinthians. We'd gotten through the first um, 11 chapters and with this week we pick it up again. Um, And I want to give a little lay of the land of the book of 1 Corinthians to remind us what we learned about Corinth, about the church, and some of the things we've dealt with. If you go If you have a Bible, this won't be up on the screen, but if you go to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, you see that it begins this way, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So right away out of the gate, the apostle Paul asserts his authority. It's very countercultural to do this, Um, but Paul is enough of a servant and humble enough to assert his authority. And men always remember as husbands and fathers, the really humble man is not the man who cops a posture as not being an authority. The really humble man is the man that wears his authority, is not apologetic about it, and uses it to serve the people in his church, in his home, wherever. Paul... Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he makes it clear that it's Jesus who called him to this task and that he's not putting himself forward, that it's not because he wants to be important, but that Jesus has called him to this job. And then he makes it clear that Jesus Christ is doing this, calling him by the will of God. And so there's authority everywhere in the book of Corinthians. And this is a scandal to us because we hate authority. But you see right away, Paul called as an apostle by Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And so you see that God's will is that Jesus Christ will call the apostle. All right? And so they're all keeping their stations properly. And Sosthenes, our brother, too. All right, so it's a letter. And back then they were sensible in how they did letters because they said who it was to and who it was from right at the beginning. Whereas now we get a letter, we always look at the end to see who it's from, although everybody doesn't use letters anymore. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. So sweet, I always think of this, it's so sweet that it's the church. There weren't two churches, three, 10, 20, 75. There, were two, there was one church in Corinth, and it was the church of God. The church which is at Corinth to those who have been, notice have been as a past tense, they have been sanctified. Wouldn't it be wonderful if your wife looked at you and she said, you have been sanctified. These are words I have not heard out of my wife's mouth, you know. You have been sanctified, and I could just go, I've been sanctified, you know. So the Apostle Paul says, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, well, that's certainly something my wife has never said to me. You know, they said, they announced this morning that Mother Teresa is now a saint, but we're going to still call her mother. Well, I, I'm still dad or Tim. I've, I, I haven't heard anybody calling me a saint. 
Well, then there's some relief, saints by calling. Oh, okay, so this is where I'm headed. All right, I'm better with that. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So in other words, at this point, we're dealing with formalities, right? Paul, an apostle, by the calling of Jesus Christ, according to the will of the Father, to the church that is in Corinth, Sosthenes, our brother, he writes with me, uh, grace and peace to you. And you, you feel like you're in a formula and that this is normally how things began. And then he says this, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus and in everything you were enriched in him. I thank my God every time I remember you. Again, is this something that your wife says about you? You know, I, I, when I pray, I just thank my God for, for you. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, I thank my God because of how wonderful you are. I thank my God that he gave me the privilege of serving you, such a wonderful congregation. I mean, that would go down easily, wouldn't it? That's not quite what he says. What he says is, I thank my God always concerning you, what? for the grace of God. In other words, for the unmerited favor, for the things you don't deserve, for the things that really have nothing to do with you, except God through his Holy Spirit has acted on you. So there's not a lot for them to be proud about here, right? For the grace of God which was given you, how active are you when a gift is given you? You just receive it. He's not, he's not pandering to their pride. He's not flattering. Which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony conserving Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are, you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also concern, confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Now, listen, do we all understand Every step of the way, the emphasis is on God. They are receivers. They are not initiators. They are the ones that God's working through, and it's all gifts. And that's what he thanks them for, and that's what he reminds them of. They are God's work, okay? Through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we're still in the formula, aren't we? We're still going through, being reminded of truths, where the authority is, that they're the recipients of gifts, that these gifts are completely sufficient for everything you need in life. He lists all the gifts, the ways that they've been given. And now we're done with the introduction, and he says this. Verse 10, now. Well, when the word now is used, you realize that now is different from all the rehearsal, all the formality, now. In other words, he's getting to work. Now, I exhort. Now, what does the word exhort mean? Uh, the word exhort means this is important, and I'm not suggesting we had a young woman live with us, come to live with us. I think this was the relative. And, and when she came to live with us, you'd hear Mary Lee out in the kitchen, and Mary Lee would say 
say her name was Susan. Susan, would you like to set the table? And Susan would say, no. And it took a little while for us to realize that this was somebody who hadn't been acclimated to the notion that a suggestion from an authority is actually a command. And so we had to sit her down and explain to her that she wasn't being asked if she wanted to do something. She was actually being told. All right? Well, that's what's going on here. I exhort you, brother. The Apostle Paul isn't suggesting. He's making it very clear. This is a command. He's exhorting. What? I exhort you, brethren, by the name, oh, that's nice, by the authority of Jesus Christ. Oh, you're, you're an apostle, you're exhorting us by the authority of Jesus Christ, and you're exhorting us. So all of a sudden, all the trump cards are laid out there, and it's intense. Right out of the gate, it's intense. It only took him 10 verses to get intense. And he says this, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all Agree. That you all agree. And that there be no divisions among you. All right, now, all agree. Why does he exhort him that they all agree? Well, the reason he exhorts them that they all agree must have been what? They didn't agree. If he's exhorting them under the authority of Jesus Christ that they all agree, this must mean that they were divided. In other words, that they were fighting. And this is the theme that you'll see over and over again in the book of 1 Corinthians. You're going to see over and over again the repetition of the Corinthians fighting. And if there is some aspect of their life as a church, they fight over it. Does that make sense to you? For instance, if they have a financial issue between them and that financial issue can't be resolved, they'll go to court against each other. For instance, if one man wants another man's, his father's wife, let's say there's a man that wants his father's wife, he just beds her. He doesn't worry about how his father feels, how everybody else feels. He just beds her. Remember the, in chapter 5, the incest. And the Apostle Paul says at that point, and you're all proud. So they're divided. They're proud. Incest is going on. They're proud. They have um, people fighting over money. They're proud. And what we're headed into with chapter 12 is that the Holy Spirit has given individual gifts to this church for the building up of the body, and they use those gifts to fight. Now think about this. The Holy Spirit gives them the gift of tongues, they fight. The gift of interpretations, they fight. The gift of prophecy, they fight. The gift of discernment, they fight. The gift of healing, the gift of miracles. Every single one of these things is an occasion of them fighting. And so all through the book of Corinthians, we have fight after fight after fight after fight after division. When they go to the Lord's table, which is to be the place that we demonstrate our unity under the blood and body of Jesus. Jesus has given his life up for us. You would think if a mother's given birth to us in our mother's presence, we would stop fighting. Right? You understand this? Jesus has given his life up for us. 
at the Lord's table, this church was doing what? This church had rich people and poor people. The rich people had tons of food and tons of booze. And they sat there and drank wine and ate food and feasted while the poor people in the church had nothing. And that's what they did at the Lord's table. And that's what chapter 11 was right before where we pick up today with chapter 12. So this church is a church that's racked with division. And where there's division, there is always what? There's always pride. And there's nothing as intense in the book of 1 Corinthians as Paul's tr- just combat boots stomping on their pride. Now, what kind of a city would get a church that would have this kind of problem. I mean, what's the city like that that's what the people are like? Because like people like city, right? What kind of city would it be? And it would be Bloomington. This is exactly like Bloomington. Precisely like Bloomington. For instance, the sexual debauchery. Bloomington is known for the Kinsey Institute and the IU Opera Program and athletics. And what do they all share? Sexual debauchery. Do you know what debauchery means? Debauchery means degradation. Do you know what degradation means? Well, it means debauchery. (laughs) It means disgusted violation of God's beautiful gift of sexuality. That's what debauchery means. You've taken something and you've destroyed it. You know, you've just utterly destroyed it. And so this is Bloomington. Back in 1948, the first of the two Kinsey reports was released. And Margaret Mead, Margaret Mead, you know who Margaret Mead is, right? Margaret Mead was no Christian. She was an anthropologist, and she had no faith, and she was godless. And when Margaret Mead was asked two months after the first Kinsey report was released in 1948, by the American Social Hygiene Association, which was a scholarly group, and they were meeting in New York City, and they asked Margaret Mead to give them her response to the Kinsey Report. And Margaret Mead said, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. It turns sex into an excrement instead of a sacrament. And that's a direct quote. And then she goes on and she says a lot of our... Um, a lot of our sexual morality depends upon us not knowing what other people are doing in the privacy of our bedroom, but this exposes everything. And she says this is going to lead to everybody having trouble answering the question of why they should have a woman instead of a sheep. Direct quote. Think about this. And this is, what, 56, 66 years ago, that's how Margaret Mead. And yet we have the Kinsey Institute at the center of our campus, and it's our claim to fame. It put little old IU on the map, you know, and it's still there, right? Degradation sexually was at the heart of Corinth. They had a church where there was incest in the church, and the people were proud. And this is true of all the churches in America today. There's incest. In in my last week of writing, two separate churches, I I worked with the pastors on incest cases in the church. 
this is us, okay? And, you, and, and then what you look at is not just uh, sexual incest, but also the blurring of all distinction between male and female. And this is exactly what Corinth was doing. You know, Corinth didn't want to have a distinction between men and women in their worship. They wanted to just act like they were all persons. And so the women were unwilling to confess the fact that God made Eve second and Adam first, that God put in Adam the fatherhood of God, the Father Almighty, that there was an order to creation. They, they were intolerant of this, and they would not, would not submit to it. And so the Apostle Paul had to deal with the order of man and woman. And, and it's in this book that he says, look, you know, man is the glory of God and the woman is the glory of the man. And if that doesn't make it clear, then throw your Bible out or clear out the cobwebs because it doesn't get any more direct than that. <laughs> man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man. There we have hierarchy. Sorry. But I'm really not sorry because when Mary Lee and I finally repented of our feminism, which corrupted us for years, guess what? It left room for us to submit to God. And guess what? When you submit to God, the blessings that you're given are something you can never believe when you're so bound up with fear and, and pride that you won't submit to God. And so Mary Lee and I now have a marriage that despite the tension we had yesterday, which was caused by me and thankfully stopped before we got to your house yesterday. <laughs> yeah. um, yesterday, you know how God dealt with me about my pride and anger? I was up on a six-foot ladder, and he made me fall. <laughs> and I realized that was God, <laughs> you know? I need to be kind to my wife, right? That doesn't mean there isn't an order. There's an order of man and woman. We'll get back to this. So Corinth was absolutely unwilling to submit to God in the matter of sexuality. Corinth was unwilling to say that because God made one, man, one, one person a man and another person a woman, that from that flowed certain facts of life. They, they wouldn't submit to it. They would not submit to God saying no to incest. They would not submit to God saying no to fornication. They're just like Bloomington. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And, all right. And, guess what? Corinth was completely conceited in its intellectual pride. Now, I know that doesn't resemble us, right? None of us are proud intellectually, right? Certainly not. Herr Dr. Professor Jürgen von Hagen. Where's Jürgen? You're not proud, right, of your intellect? No, no, no. He's German. And one might almost say that to be German is to be proud. You know how David Wagner's always saying that he's of German descent? <laughs> or is... of of what's called German, what? Descent, okay, I got the word descent right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Ask David the story afterwards. Now listen, I'm picking on people it's safe to pick on. Those of you that are not the people I'm picking on, don't take offense for them. The fact is, Jürgen uh, would tell you himself 
that he always has to battle against academic and intellectual pride. Any good academic is going to tell you, if he's a Christian, that he's constantly battling against it because the whole world is laid out of, in front of academics today. And so Jürgen is not angry at me, so don't you be angry at me. Listen, in Bloomington, we worship idols. And everybody knows what our idols are. Okay? And the way everybody knows what our idols are is because we make them into images and we bow before them. Okay? Generally, people bow before the gods they worship. Right? And so guess what? In Bloomington, we bow before our gods. And this shouldn't surprise us because we're religious, right? And, and this is what you do when you're religious. You bow in front of your idols. So if you go to a Bloomington IU basketball game, about two-thirds of the way through the basketball game, there is the moment when all the high priestesses, they call them cheerleaders, make a circle around the IU flag, and they get the largest flag of the whole game at that moment. And they have a man who's able to hold the flag, climb the pyramid, and then all of the IU cheerleaders get on their knees like this, and they're not wearing many clothes because you can feel much more spiritual and mystical when you're looking at flesh. Are, are you all with me? They're not wearing many clothes. And they go up and down like this, like this, like this. The whole time, the entire assembly hall is in a frenzy. And Christians are there and don't turn their back on it. And listen, this is worship, and it's worshiping the God of IU. And one of the sick things about our culture today is we love irony. You know, what it means to be postmodern is that you understand irony and you use it. And so what everybody thinks is that this is an ironic gesture. And that everybody there knows that this isn't really spiritual and it isn't really religious and it isn't really a God and we're not really doing obeisance. And Satan convinces us that because we can explain what we're doing, it means it's not wrong. Listen, we belong to Jesus. We have a Lord. Our Lord is not IU basketball. It's not IU football. And it's not the brain. Have you noticed the last couple of years, all these, all these gods popping up on street corners and their brains. Have you noticed this? All over town, their brains. Literally, have you seen them? You know what I'm talking about. Now listen, is this ironic? No, it's our God, the brain. And this is Corinth. Corinth was so proud. 
It had wealth, it had sophistication, it had the arts, it had the temples to pagan gods, they worshiped them, it had sexual debauchery, and so the church directly reflected the town because that's always the way it is. You want to know what the sins are of Bloomington? Come into our church and see what the sins of our church are. And so this is the people that the Apostle Paul is writing to. And he has said to them that they are sanctified, that they are becoming saints. And so you read all the things going on in the church of Corinth, and you're thinking, uh, does not compute. How could they have incest? How could they have drunkenness at the Lord's table? How could they have intellectual pride? How could they use the gift of tongues to fight against each other? I mean, honestly. How could they go to court with each other and be sanctified? And that's the conflict of this book, because what we see is not only was Corinth not godly, not doing daily mass, not having auricular confession. Not only was Corinth not giving itself to the works of righteousness of the Christian church when they were called by God, they were pulled up out of the pit, like pulling a kitten out of, out of the, the nest. All right? But God is still working with them without, shall we say, their full agreement. In other words, not only was their justification when they were born again not of themselves, but their sanctification is not of themselves. Unless what's required for sanctification is that you sin a whole bunch and it's just awful, and then God has something to work with. You know? It's weird. Now, I ask you, is this not you? This is you. You were not qualified to become a Christian and to die to your pride and take the blood of Jesus. You are not qualified to come to this table today. You have nothing in your hands to bring. And this is Corinth, and this is Bloomington, and this is us. We have fallen into idolatry of sports. We have fallen into the idolatry of sexual debauchery. We have given ourselves to intellectual pride. We have used the gift of preaching to lift men up way high and to buy their books and to go to their conferences and download their podcasts. And boy, the preachers, you know, I'm having such trouble trying to preach to us chapter 12. Why? Well, because the gifts that they made much of, we don't even, we don't give a rip about. You know, nobody in this church is respected by everybody because they speak in tongues. And so I could just be so clean by saying, you know, the supernatural sign gifts have stopped, and so we don't need to worry about this stupid chapter. And then you go to Gospel Coalition together for the gospel and the master's conferences, oh, and here come the preachers, and well, isn't he a man? You all know what I'm talking about. Money makes the world go around, and money makes the church go around, and it's not Benny Hinn in this church. 
is it? It's me. It's the man who can communicate and who can make us understand Scripture more and come under the conviction of God. That's what we value. And so Tim is the one that's up high, and you, you, know, you think, okay, okay, I, there's a way we can deal with that. Well, how do you deal with it? You fire me? Well, yeah, you could fire me, but then you're going to put somebody else back up, and there's always going to be a pecking order between the gifts. The people that clean the toilets are not valued. We take them for granted. The people that put roofs on are somewhat valued if they can save us 100000 And the preacher is always at the top. And so if they're good people that come into the church, we get them to be preachers. Back in the time of Corinth, we would have gotten them to speak in tongues. Now, I'm not going to solve that problem for you. Those of you who have been here any time know that I constantly try to put stories of my sin, of my failures, into who I am, into my preaching, and then you remember what I always say, here's an idea, let's have a preacher who's, come on, say it, who's, yeah, that's the better way. I say it like this, here's an idea, let's have a preacher who's helpful, but I never say it that way. I always say, here's an idea, let's have a preacher who's helpful. Now, why do I do it like that? I do it like that so that we don't take the gift of preaching and, 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 and worship it, the man that does it, his wife, first family, you know, Oval Office, Lincoln, bedroom, all that stuff, that we only have an expectation that our preacher has sympathy for us and knows our sins and will be, will be honest with us. And then he's helpful. What do you want out of a preacher? You just want him to be Come on, come on, give me the intonation. You just want them to be? That's exactly right. And this is a conscious thing this church does. We do this so that we do not allow ourselves to be sucked into putting one man above everybody else and whatever he says goes and whatever he does. Do you understand that? Now, that does not mean that I don't exercise authority. I do. But what it does mean is that the authority of our pastors and elders is a plural authority, a plurality of the eldership. It means we have a very large group with a lot of pastors and elders in it that make the key decisions. It means that when we have our pastors say, I want to help on the roof, that those pastors go to the elders and say, would it be possible for us to spend this week working on the roof using the money that you're paying us? And the elders make a decision on that. Do you understand this? Now, I'll come back to this, but I want you to understand there are things we have to translate as we go through Corinth. Because I, I say it, Corinth is Bloomington doesn't mean that there's not a need for translation. Are you with me? Now, just a couple things on verse 1, and then we'll stop having spent a week getting introduced again to Corinth and looking at verse 1. Let me read verses um, 1 to 7. So we've gone to chapter 1, now we're on chapter 12, and I've given you sort of a lay of the land of chapters 1 through 11. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you 
that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And this is the word of the Lord. Verse 1, now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. The word now does what I mentioned earlier. When, when, when the Apostle Paul says now, what you know is that he's a workman picking up a different tool about to start a different part of the job. So if his job is sanctifying the church and dealing with a number of divisions and failures, we know here we're turning to a different division and failure. Now, and everybody goes, huh, something else? Now, concerning, well, the word concerning tells us that he's about to name the thing he's going to deal with. Now, concerning spiritual gifts. Now, the word there is just spiritual, and depending on how you understand the context, it could be spiritual men, or it could be spiritual things or spiritual gifts. So if you have an NIV, you'll see that the word gifts is put in italics because it's not in the Greek. It's just now concerning spiritual, all right? Think about the word spiritual today. Have you noticed how the most godless friends of yours are claiming to be spiritual? Have you noticed how they all say that I, I, have, I have a spiritual connection or I have a, I have a spiritual intuition or I, I, I'm actually a spiritual, you know, did you go to church? No, but I, I'm, I, I'm a spiritual, I have a spiritual, right? Everybody except Christopher Hitchens is spiritual. You notice this. And what are they claiming when they say they're spiritual? Are they claiming to be of the Holy Spirit? No, they're not. What they're really saying is that they're religious, right? No, they're not. What they're really saying is that they have some religious inclinations that combine with their mystical wackoness put together, they're spiritual. So spiritual today means a sort of mysticism and a sort of religiosity kind of pressed together and who knows what the melanges you come up with. So everybody today is spiritual. Is that what Paul means when he says about spiritual things? That's not what Paul means. How do we know? Well, if you go into the Old Testament, you will see that when the Messiah, who is Jesus, it comes, this is what it says about when the Messiah comes. It will come about, this is Joel 2, 28 and 29, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that concerning spiritual things, in other words, concerning things of the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
And so when the Messiah comes, he promises that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. So they've been told by the Old Testament prophets that with the Messiah will come the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus says with his departure will come the Holy Spirit. And so in John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. In other words, I'm going to leave. I will ask the Father. He'll send you the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. John 16, 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. That always has been confusing to me. How could it ever be to our advantage that Jesus goes away? But he says it is. And he says, why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Then, at the very end, before he's gathered up to heaven in the ascension, Jesus gathers his disciples together, Acts 1-4, and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, speaking of John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then we skip to chapter 2 of Acts, and there we read, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all what? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, concerning what? Spiritual gifts. Concerning spiritual gifts. Concerning the things of the Holy Spirit. Concerning the Holy Spirit's work among you giving gifts concerning the Holy Spirit's gifts. Now what does that do to you as someone who is having this letter read to you out loud in a worship service? Now concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit, does that put you at ease? Now, concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual gifts, does that put you at ease? It doesn't put you at ease. Why not? Well, the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is not nice. Do you understand that? The Holy Spirit is not nice. Now, why would I say that? Well, we just got done studying how the Holy Spirit was making many people in the Corinthian church sick and killing some because of how they were conducting themselves at the Lord's table. Do you remember that? Everybody remember that. Is that what anybody means when they say nice today? No. The Holy Spirit was the one that zapped dead Nadab and Abihu for burning strange fire. You remember that. And how about the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem? And how about Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Listen, we don't play with the Holy Spirit. 
We don't play with him. And the Holy Spirit is not sitting around wondering what his, his ratings are with us. The Holy Spirit isn't trying to get likes on Facebook. The Holy Spirit is God. And he is jealous because God's name is jealous. And the Holy Spirit will not share his glory or the glory of the Father or the Son with anyone. And here this church is using the gifts of the Holy Spirit to divide for some to be proud and for others to resent the ones that are proud. The gift of healing, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. They are using these gifts to get a leg up on others in the congregation. They're using the Lord's table to do this. This is the people that Paul says are being sanctified. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not bothered. The Holy Spirit isn't sitting around waiting to get good ratings from us. The Holy Spirit is not flattering the people of God. And this is the reason I say over and over again that if you talk about the mainstream pastor in America today working for the normal wealthy North American church, his job is to protect the congregation from the Holy Spirit. And this is the reason why preaching doesn't have a point. It's just a lecture. This is the reason why you don't feel guilty under the ministry of the word anymore. This is the reason why everybody is dressed to the nines in churches. Because if you don't have holiness and mercy and love, what are you going to do? You have to wear something to church. And you say, well, that's not what suits mean. And I say, okay, it's not what suits mean. But you know, I've noticed that the more I sin, the more fixated on cleanliness I get. You know, the dirtier the inside of my cup gets, the more focused on the outside of my cup I get. <laughs> I mean, come on, can any of you identify with that? You've been in some of these homes that there is not a hair on the carpet anywhere, and it's filled with incest. And churches, where they, the minute they have a congregational meeting, all hell breaks loose. But every Sunday morning, perfect makeup, perfect hair, perfect SUVs, everything's perfect. No hail damage cars in that parking lot. You know what I'm talking about, right? Would you give me some support here, even though you're white? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. So listen. This is the condition of the Corinthian church. They are using spiritual things and spiritual gifts to divide the church. Do you understand this? And this is serious. And already for other things they're doing, they've got incest, they've got people getting sick and dying because of God's judgment. And do you think they were sitting around before the Apostle Paul wrote them and saying, I wonder why people are getting sick and dying in our church. And somebody else said, well, I think it's because so, some of us are coming to the Lord's table and getting drunk and some are having incest. No, they weren't saying any of that. They were all perfectly assured that everything was good with their church because they were proud. Right? Now, one other little word, and then we'll be done. And you can probably guess what the little word's going to be, Right? Right? Anybody want to guess? Huh? 
Huh? Anybody want to guess? Well, that little word that we'll end with is that little word, brethren. You didn't even see it, did you? It just went down like honey, like tea, like chamomile. You know? You just... Now, concerning spiritual things, brethren, spiritual gifts, brethren. Now, listen, approximately 50% of those of you who are here are not brethren. (laughs) And I would expect that right about now you would rise up in rebellion against the word of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and certainly that, that Neanderthal dude named the Apostle Paul for being exclusive of you as women and daughters and mothers, right? You're so offended, right? Well, the truth is you are. The truth is you are. I am, you are, because you live in Bloomington. And you have been carefully taught that what the Apostle Paul really meant was brethren and cistern, but cistern holds water and it's a well, so brothers and sisters. Right? And so what we've done is we've gone to the Bible publishers and said, would you clean up this this weirdness, because we've evolved. And the Bible needs to keep up with us as we evolve. And so what's happened, if you have an NIV 2011 in your lap, the NIV translates it brothers and sisters. But then the NIV has a little footnote, and the footnote says Greek brothers. So the NIV gives you the option of knowing what the real Greek that the Holy Spirit inspired says. Down in the footnote, if you are suspicious of the scholars and the publishers, you'll go to the footnote and you'll see Greek brothers, right? Now, if you use the NLT, the New Living Translation, you will again find the same construction, and down at the bottom, it also will say, actually, it may be just the NLT that says Greek brothers. I don't think the NIV even is willing to let you know that's what the Greek is. So the NIV won't won't ever indicate that they've added a word to the text of Scripture, sisters. The NLT will let you know that if you go to the footnote. Now, the ESV, like always, is neither hot nor cold. (laughs) Because what what the ESV does is the ESV translates it brothers, and you all go, right on, dude, right? But then in the footnote, it says brothers it says, or brothers and sisters. So the NIV makes you think in the footnote that the Greek has the word sisters after they are so courageous as to translate it brothers. So this is what you have to expect from us today because these publishers are only doing where our ears itch. They're scratching us. Why do we want it to be brothers and sisters? The reason we want it to be brothers and sisters is that we reject the fact that God made Adam responsible for the race. That God created Adam first, and that because of that, Adam was responsible. That God made Adam responsible for the peace of his creation. Adam is the one when he sinned that caused God to come into the garden and say, where are you? And then when Adam, he found he had made clothing because now he was ashamed of his nakedness and he was hiding with Eve, God said, did you? And notice he didn't direct the question to Eve. He directed the question to Adam. It's you singular. 
Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? And guess what's happened? Adam refused to bear his responsibility, and consequently, death came to us all. Only that one sin is what causes your father to lie in a hospital bed and to think that there's a two-by-four above his head. Every bit of suffering you have ever seen and nursed everywhere is because of one sin of Adam. And that's God's prerogative. And God doesn't have to assure us that he's fair because what God does is fair. And so he went to Adam. Have you eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good? Have you eaten the fruit I told you not to eat? And Adam answers. Why? Because Adam is the man. Adam was created first. And so guess what? All through your life, you are going to see and either love it or hate it, but there will be no neutrality. The constant instruction of all creation that God is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name and that he placed his fatherhood in the male of the species. And that every woman who tries to bear the responsibility because her husband is gone will be at best second best. And she may do a wonderful job of being a man in a woman's body. She may be the one that for the rest of her life, that family rises up and calls her blessed for making as best as she could without Adam. But she is not Adam because these things are not God asking us how we would like it to be. God's not bothered by us. God ordained that Adam would be created first and that because he was created first, he would have the responsibility of protecting the peace of God's creation. Adam refused to do his job. God held Adam responsible. And Adam was so bad that Adam said, the woman that you gave me, she gave me of this. I mean, it is absolutely pathetic. And so now we come to a little itsy-bitsy word. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1, they were brethren and everybody has a hissy fit about it. And by God, that's going to be brothers and sisters. And listen, it's not the word we're concerned about. We hate authority and we hate the fact that God has made authority reside in men in a way he hasn't made it reside in women. That's the reality of us today. And so, I know every single year I try to preach this truth right at the beginning of the academic year because I, I hate bait and switch. I just want to get out of the way at the beginning of the year that if you are a feminist or an egalitarian, this is not the church for you. Because we know our sin. I know the years my wife and I spent as feminists in our marriage, and it weren't pretty. 
Nobody who is a woman and tries to squeeze the snot out of a man's hand to impress him that she's just as strong as he is, is pretty. As a matter of fact, she's embarrassing because every woman has a strength over a man that is undeniable and impossible to resist. And I'm not talking sex lust. I'm talking about femininity. And when the female sex tries to take on itself the intimidation of Mike Bowles, who is bad to the bone, and will let you know the minute you squeeze his hand how bad to the bone he is. Right, Mike? I mean, honestly, right? How many of you men know what I'm talking about? There, Mike, that's the answer. You could have answered yourself, but Erica, put your arm around him and comfort him. (laughs) Now listen, this is how God's made it, and it's beautiful. So let me end with this. If you're a father and you have both daughters and sons, and you have a daughter and a son who are fighting together, it doesn't matter who's older and who's younger. When you call them to account in front of you to stop the fighting, which is your job as the father, and if he's gone, then the mother, when you call them to account in front of you, if you're a good parent, what do you do? What you do is you look at your son and say, son, right? You say, son, because you immediately try to put on him the weight of his sex. You want him to go through life deferring to women. You want him to go through life making life easier for women because last night Amanda gave birth. And isn't there some justice in this world? If those women are going to put themselves through what they put themselves through to bring us into this world and to care for us for years and to carry us in their bosom when we're 65 years old and they're dying, they still carry us. Is it not right that the man bears the responsibility that God gives him? And so the Apostle Paul's looking at this church, and he sees that there's incest, and there's pride, and there's using the gift of tongues to whoop up on other people, and there's gone to court, and it's, it's just haywire. And he looks at the congregation. He knows this letter is going to be read to him. And he says, now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. And he knows that the minute he says that, all the women are going to dutifully take out their earplugs and stick them in their ears because this ain't for them. But of course, it's absurd. All the women are listening. So why does he say brothers? Well, it's the same reason you say son. You are to be a gentleman with your sister. Now, it just so happens that his sister's sitting there listening. And she thinks, well, if he has to be a gentleman, it's not fair for me to act as if he's the oppressor when I'm actually the devious one that just manipulated him. And guess what? We have godliness and sanctification in a church. Now listen, brothers, concerning spiritual... And all the women are listening. 
And yes, he addresses the men because they have the obligation of protecting the peace. But can you tell me one man in your life who's ever been able to protect the peace without a woman? I mean, yeah, he's addressing the men, but every woman there knows it's her job to help her husband in every way she possibly can to carry out his responsibility. Because what is a father in a home without a mother? Come on. Can we please end the insanity of egalitarianism and feminism corrupting the people of God? This just works so beautifully. You know, we speak to the men. Why do we speak to the men if the woman is the one that has the power over the children and can bring peace? The reason we speak to the man is because no man's ever going to do anything unless somebody looks at him and says, now listen, brother. Every man is going to abdicate. He's going to be a coward. He's going to be lazy. And meanwhile, the woman misses nothing. And so don't worry, the Apostle Paul has the undivided attention of every woman. (laughs) But he won't have any man's attention unless he says, now listen, brothers. I mean, come on, this is so simple. So don't throw that word brothers out. It has priceless meaning in a feminist egalitarian day. God has made us men responsible to keep the peace. Okay? And if you don't keep the peace in your marriage, if you don't keep the peace in your family, if you don't keep the peace in your city, you don't keep the peace in your state, you don't keep the peace at your school, at your business, then a woman will. And she'll squeeze the snot out of your hand and it'll just make you embarrassed. But it's what you deserve. Because you're not a man. God made men to reflect that he is the Father Almighty. And we bear his authority. And we bear it either to our blame or to our commendation. Okay? So that's how far we've gotten into 1 Corinthians 12. And they took it down. They were hopeless. (laughs) And next week, we'll pick up, or no, two weeks, we'll pick up with verse 2. And wasn't it helpful? Just helpful. So talk about these things. Listen, I know it's hard. I know we don't want to see what Scripture teaches about manhood and womanhood. But look, ask a woman in this church to instruct you. Because they'll do a good job of breaking down our barriers and helping us to see that they do love men who bear responsibility. And you realize all authority is, is what God gives us to fulfill the responsibility he gives us. That's all authority is. It's just a tool that responsibility requires. Let's come to the Lord's table.